my jaw drops as I turn a street corner and see the New York Public Library in mid-Manhattan. It's a massive stone building on the corner of 42nd Street and 5th Avenue, right next to Bryant Park. I've seen magnificent libraries in both Berlin and Boston, but this feels even more majestic. The ceilings are almost too high for me to see. The hallways are long and wide and busy from the minute the doors open. As I walk towards the reading room for manuscripts and rare books, I have to pass a large, beautiful study hall. This library must be a paradise. Wooden shelves full of books, chandeliers, a beautifully carved wooden book loaning station in the middle of the hall, and long tables where people huddle with their books and laptops. I walk to the end of the study hall and ring the doorbell to the reading room. The door opens. I have ordered several boxes of archive material in advance, and now the documents are just a few steps away. I sign in, sit down, and open the first box. I end up spending several hours in the library. As I browse letters and manuscripts and take as many photos as I can, I can't help but smile because I already know I'm going to have to return to the US. I won't have enough time to go through everything I want to. There's simply too much material and too little time. I wonder what Hazel would say if she was here. She helped compile these papers after Maurice Werner, her second husband, passed away. She's the one who contacted NYPL to create the collection in the first place. But I wonder, did she foresee someone going over the papers some 40 years later in order to research her life instead of his? I stop for a while to read a passage in one of the manuscripts or letters where Hazel is mentioned, and my thoughts return back to the dunes immediately. I can still feel the sand under my bare feet and the salty air on my skin. It was so quiet and calm in the dunes, and here we are, in New York, where silence is a commodity that you can buy, I guess. What a crazy thought. I mean, it's so quiet here in the reading room, but the second I step outside... (sighs) But not everything is for sale. There are things one simply cannot buy, or should not buy. I feel very strongly about this in the present-day world, and so did people in Provincetown decades ago. You see, the early 60s were a critical time for the protection of the dunes as there was a lot of commercial interest in Cape Cod. Imagine, instead of sand, sea and quiet, you'd have hotels and resorts in the dunes, one next to the other. I guess if you start to buy silence by turning landscapes into profits, you can only do it once, and then the silence is gone, forever. Like many others in Provincetown, Hazel is determined to protect the dunes. In December 1960, 
She travels to Eastham to take part in the public hearings about a recently introduced legislation to establish a national park. When it's her turn to take the floor, she talks about the unique character of Cape Cod that she so dearly loves. She says, I am a writer by profession. I have been a summer resident of Provincetown for 42 years, a year-round voting resident of Provincetown for the past eight years. During the warmer seasons of the 42 years, I have lived on the sand dunes in a region to be included in the proposed National Seashore Park. For the sake of conservation of the beloved natural features of this region, I am wholly and without reservation in favor of the passage of Bill. That the outer beach and the now privately owned sand dunes between the province lands and Pilgrim Spring State Park are a wonder place is indisputable. A stranger to this area may not understand why the artists and many townspeople of Provincetown regard the province lands also as a wonder place, and why we urge its inclusion within the boundaries of the park. It is because they are unique. Thousands of towns in our country are so alike that someone set down from the air, blindfolded, would not know his whereabouts, not one town from another. A person so set down in the backlands of Provincetown can at once exclaim, this must be Cape Cod. He may go on. The smell of bay leaves, these curious small oaks, this ground cover, what is it? like nothing I've ever had underfoot before. This quiet under the wind. These sandy hills. This dust-free air. This must be near the end of the Cape. This must be Provincetown. The following year, in 1961, President John F. Kennedy signs a bill to establish a new national park, the Cape Cod National Seashore. The dunes are now protected for future generations to find paths, places, thoughts, visions, layers of history, destinies even. Salvaging the dune shacks is a different story altogether. But I mean, where would I be had the park not been established in the first place? Would Hazel's story as a dune lover even exist? Would I have found it? I don't think so. As it often happens in life, as one challenge is overcome, another one arises. Some 50 years have passed since Hazel lost her father William when he was only 42, and now, in 1963, she loses her mother Esther who lived to see almost 94 years. A long, respectable age for anyone. You remember the strange symptoms Hazel started to suffer from some time ago? Difficulties with balance and shaky hands? Well, Hazel is not the only one in the family. Esther, her mother, who was often called Gran Hazel or Gran Hay for short, had similar symptoms. And so did Hazel's brother, Roger. A few years after her mother's passing, in 1967, Hazel writes to her niece, Prudence, who worries about her father. 
She writes, I'm not nearly as badly off as is your father, as you know, and signs of deterioration of equilibrium and coordination are very slow to develop. I don't mean to be smug, but can't resist saying I attribute this less to good fortune than to good nutrition and especially to moderation in drinking. I never drink at parties and have two martinis a day, nothing else. If wine with dinner, I pass up the martini. I'd scream if I couldn't have these two drinks. Sally's neurologist tells her the Marie syndrome begins to be observed at about the time of change of life. All my girls see signs of it, but are not distressingly off balance. And as they live moderately and well in the ways I've described about myself, I don't speak for Jane, as she has a weakness for alcohol, alas, they will very likely not be too distressed in later years. Gran Hay certainly had the syndrome, but it didn't show up until her late 70s, so far as I know. That's when she first spoke of her staggering to me. She wondered why she didn't walk straight anymore. You ask if your father will ever walk. Considering the deteriorative nature of the disease, that's what it is, a disease of the cerebellum, I dare to say the answer is no. This all sounds pretty grim, but when you consider other afflictions, such as cerebral palsy or Parkinson's disease, you'll feel how lightly we get off provided we live with a care for our general health. I'm sure a doctor would tell you to have children by all means, but don't take my word for it. See, or in writing consult, any good neurologist. When next fall I consult one such, I'll ask him about this, but I'm already sure of the answer. Bear in mind that the thinking part of the brain is not affected. Only the equilibrium and coordination controls. I'm back in Finland. Weeks and months pass by. Before I know, it's November again, my least favorite month. It's dark and rainy, <laughs> we have less daylight every day, and it feels as if everything is covered in a thick fog, including my mind. I wonder how it must have felt for Hazel in her older days, to have a, a perfectly clear, functioning mind, but to lose the ability to hold a pen and walk straight. Someone told me that Hazel stopped spending time in her shacks when she could no longer haul a jug of water up the dune. She would walk down to the well, prime the pump and fill the jug with cold, sweet water, and then try to climb back. Eventually the day came, when she would just keel over, no matter how she tried to climb. Another story I've heard says the local police in Provincetown had to confiscate her bicycle when her riding became, well, rather hazardous, not only to herself, but also to everyone around her. For me, it's just the opposite. My body is healthy. I've got my balance. I can hold a pen. But the lack of daylight here in Helsinki at this time of year just 
blurs my mind every year. I have so much material to work on, especially from the NYPL archives, but now, in the all-consuming grayness of November, the work doesn't progress as much as I'd like to. I start to dream of spending time in the dunes, of going back, but not only for a quick visit. I want to stay in one of the shacks, at least for a week. I want to walk in the dunes, smell the salty sea air, and see the sun rise and set in the distance. Just as I think Helsinki could not get any darker, and I mean this literally, a ray of light arrives in the form of a package in the mail. It is from Sue, Susan Pomerance, Hazel's grandchild. She has found an old diary of Hazel's and sent it for me to read. The diary from 1913 is a small notebook, a standard diary, maybe three by five inches in size, published by the Standard Diary Company. The first dozen or so pages hold a lot of useful information for worldly citizens of the time. There are the values of foreign coins, income rates on stocks, special poisons and their antidotes, weight information on different grains, weather signals, and their interpretation, of course, tide tables, and then a list of the presidents of the United States. Hazel has scribbled entries and small remarks with a pencil here and there. I've got used to reading adult Hazel's notes on various topics, and here is Hazel, the preteen. She has checkmarked all the common first aid tips, as if to remind herself that she knows how to handle snake bites, electric shocks, or fainting. The list of 27 presidents of the United States comes right after the weather signals. I notice Hazel has added a new item to the list with her steady, adult-like handwriting. It reads, 28, Woodrow Wilson, March 4th, 1913. It makes me smile. As I look at the entry, I realize Hazel was a note-taker from an early age, an observer, a writer. To write, for her, was to think. I read the diary further. I come across an entry on January 8th. It reads... Today I made up my mind to be a great woman like Jane Addams. At the time of Hazel scribbling her future plans to the diary, Jane Addams was a reformer and social activist of the progressive era, who had not yet received the Nobel Peace Prize, nor had she been called the founder of the social work profession in the United States. But she would be all those things, and many more, in later years. And Hazel wanted to be just like her, to help others in need, to reform, to support women's suffrage, to encourage people to think independently. My heart melts as I read the lines of Hazel's diary again and again. She was 12 when she wrote this. I need to go for a walk to think about the diary and all the entries I've read. Walking, for me, means thinking. I'm sure Hazel would understand. She walked a lot in Cape Cod, 
And the story has it that she even found the dunes after a marathon walk along the coast of New England. But before I can think any further, something happens. I receive another package in the mail. And not just any package. Interview tapes with Hazel's voice on them. Hazel's voice. Can you imagine? I'll tell you all about it in the next episode. This podcast is produced by Inkaleisma and Essi Isomäki, hosted by Inkaleisma. Hazel Hawthorne's diary and letter to Prudence Hawthorne cited with permission of the Hazel Hawthorne estate. Hazel Hawthorne's speech in the 1960 Eastham hearings quoted with a few omissions. Cape Cod audio by Christopher Sulford from his album Cape Cod Soundscape, Volume 1, available in iTunes. Theme song by Studio Le Bus.